Good afternoon everyone, my name is Scott Glover and I'm the National Manager for BT Managed Accounts and Private Portfolio Management and I'm pleased to welcome you to today's webcast. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders both past and present. Now should you have any technical issues today, uh, with the webcast, please press pause first and then play. Uh, and if you're still having any difficulties, please try and refresh your browser. In the unlikely event that you're still not able to connect to uh, the replay, uh, sorry, reconnect, a replay will be available uh, and we'll send you a link after today's event. Now I know many of you will have some questions for our guest today. Uh, we will have time to answer as many of those as possible at the end of the presentation. So in order to ask your question, you can log on to www.slido.com and enter the code hashtag Pendle2020 and that will allow you to submit your questions. Now 2020 has been a particularly challenging year for investment markets. The COVID-19 global pandemic has created a great deal of uncertainty. On top of that, we've had record low interest rates around the world and unprecedented stimulus from governments to offset some of the impact. To talk about these things, and importantly, how the Pendle Group think about investing during these challenging times, it is my pleasure to welcome Crispin Murray here today. Now, Crispin is the Head of Equities at the Pendle Group, which is an ASX-listed fund manager with over $90 billion in funds under management. Crispin oversees the Pendle Australian Equities business, managing more than $15 billion in funds under management, making it one of the largest fundamental equity teams in the Australian market. Crispin, thank you for joining us and we look forward to sharing your insights with us today. Thanks Scott and uh, hello everyone and thank you for making the time today. Uh, it's certainly been an incredibly eventful year and if you think back to this time last year, our market was a 6600 and it's only down 6%. And that's despite the fact, you know, we've had a global pandemic, we've had collapsing GDP, uh, we've had border closures, we've had trade wars with China, uh, a whole series of events. And if you actually stood back a year ago and had known all of those things were going to happen, I'm sure you would have thought the market would be down a lot more than 6%. And what that highlights, though, is that really markets are very unpredictable uh, and they are forward-looking. And that really goes to the heart of our philosophy. Our, our belief uh, as an investor to make money, you have to anticipate change. You have to be thinking about what happens next rather than dwelling on what's just happened. And it's that key approach uh, that we feel has actually delivered for us through this sort of very eventful and volatile time. The second thing which we think has really stood uh, in good stead for us is our second key belief, which is that our sustainable competitive advantage comes from an information advantage. So we believe that the large team that we have, all the context that they have, really delivers us insights that allowed us to build this very clear picture about how things are changing and be able to anticipate that before the rest of the market. Now to deliver on these, uh, we really have three key uh, pillars to the way we go about investing. And these, these come down, first of all, to our business model. So uh, as Scott said, we're a listed company. Uh, we focus only on investment. Uh, my job is just to think about the portfolio uh, and ensuring that our investors are in the right stocks. So I don't have to worry about managing. I don't have to worry about you know, how do we sort of work remotely. All of those things are done by a really uh, effective executive team. And we also have everyone in the business with equity. And that, I think, aligns us to our investors. The second key pillar that we have is, is that team. You know, the team that I believe delivers a real information advantage. And we have uh, a, a team of 19 people. Uh, they've got, uh, on average, 22 years in the industry and 14 years at Pendle. And you know, we would normally talk about how that gives you an understanding of market cycles, an understanding of industry, uh, and also, you know, really importantly, all of those contacts. But in, you know, what we've actually learned on top of all of that this year is having that close connection uh, having that sort of long-term integrated approach has been really critical uh, as we've all had to work remotely. And I think we've actually been able to uh, really maintain 
that level of sharing of insights and information that is key to our process. The other thing that we've learned is that the amount of information that we're pulling in, that's sort of just dialed up significantly this year, given the rate of change of things that are happening. And we're actually finding a lot of companies actually want to talk to us because they know what we have insights on their competitors, on other companies, and what other businesses are doing in these situations. Uh, and there's a very, very much a two-way conversation. So for us, we've really felt that this information advantage has been enhanced in this environment. The final uh, pillar that we look for is our process. And the process is critical because you get so much information and you need to actually clarify that and crystallize what the consequences are. And these are the sort of five factors that we look at. And we're always looking for changes in these factors. Is an industry structure improving? Uh, are companies getting better at allocating capital? They don't have to be that great today, but if they're improving, the market is likely to reward that. And that's what we're looking for to differentiate our performance. And then the final point I would make just on this sort of introduction about how we invest is just the, the, the long-term nature of our investment approach. So we've been running a concentrated fund by, as an example, for over 17 years. And the thing I would point to is that there's been consistent performance through different cycles, both value and growth, both through large caps and small cap companies. And that cons there's also been uh, consistency. So when we deliver good years, they tend to be a lot better than those sort of one in four years where we may underperform. So consistency as well as adding value, that is the sort of key uh, outcome of having that information advantage. Now let's talk about what's been happening in the market. And really I want to sort of um, get to the sort of key issues that are facing investors today and really draw from that how do we build portfolios and whether there's still opportunities in this market. And I'll start by just saying that the one you know, fundamental pr principle that we really believe in is that the more uncertainty there is in a market, the greater the mispricing there is and actually the better the opportunity for informed investors. And so we actually believe these are the sort of environments that suit our investment approach the best. So we all know what the big issues are. You know, what's happening with the virus, how the policymakers responded, and how will they continue to respond. There's been a lot of political tensions, geopolitical issues, and the markets, not only have they been volatile, but there's been huge divergences within the markets. I'm going to address all of these issues. So if we think about sort of the key issues, first of all, what's going to happen with the virus? What does that mean in the near term? What are the longer term consequences of it? Uh, secondly, what are the tools that policymakers are using? How sustainable are those tools? How effective will they continue to be? Third issue, the market valuation. There's some genuine concerns, and I want to talk to whether or not we believe tho those are sort of really fundamental. Uh, fourth issue, the, the substantial outperformance of growth stocks versus value. So all of these issues are sort of upping in the air at the moment. They're the sort of issues that a lot of our, our investors are asking of us, and I want to try and answer these today for you. So let's turn firstly to the virus. Uh, this has been you know, the biggest health crisis that any of us have seen in our lifetime. And we've learned a number of things about the virus and COVID in the last few months. The first thing is that on the positive side, we are learning to deal with the virus better. We understand the variability in the virus and the need to protect certain parts of the population. Uh, better protocols within the healthcare system. There are beginning to see emerging therapeutic treatments that help uh, potentially reduce the, the most damaging consequences of the virus. So those are the sort of the constructive things that have occurred. But what we're also learning is the persistence of this virus. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is a dramatic resurgence of the virus. And having had a summer where uh, economies opened up, people felt the ability to move around, particularly in Europe, that has led to sub sub substantial uh, increases in the numbers. And you can see that in this chart. This is normalized for the actual uh, number of people in each of these countries. And you can see, you know, a lot of attention goes on to the United States. But Europe now has got almost double the number of cases of the United States. And countries like France are almost double again. So a significant uh, increase. And not only does that have substantial health consequences, um, and the most important for governments is the strain that it puts on healthcare systems. But what we have also learned is that ultimately the only way to deal with this, if it goes beyond a certain threshold, is to put a handbrake 
on the economy to prevent people moving around as we've seen in Victoria and that has significant consequences for the economic growth and for investments as well. So that's the thing that we need to watch for carefully at the moment because we are seeing that resurgence and there's a real divergence now between Australia and the rest of the world and I think that's an important part and theme that we will uh, come back to because it forms a key part of our portfolio. Now what we have also seen is that uh, following the initial lockdown and an economic sort of downturn, collapse uh, effectively, is actually a very strong recovery. And as, as much as there's sort of been a lot of gloom about the economic conditions that we've faced, particularly in Australia with the, the sort of second wave in Victoria, if you actually step back and look globally, we've actually seen a, a, almost a V-shaped recovery both on the industrial side and the consumer side. And this is born of the policy stimulus that we've seen. So you can see in these charts how industrial production has recovered far quicker than most people were expecting. And the outlook, which is caught in this uh, survey of manufacturing sentiment, is actually quite constructive at the moment. So things were actually looking quite positive globally, uh, really up until the sort of early part of October. And that's where this sort of latest wave of new cases. And, the question we're sort of looking at now is what is the economic consequence of that? And what we can see so far, uh, looking at this mobility data, there's a lot of real-time data now available to us. Uh, this is one of the, the, the more constructive elements of, of sort of data uh, or the lack of data privacy. We can now track what's happening in real time uh, in a lot of economies. The US, what we see here, is it's actually uh, continuing to go reasonably okay. There has not been a sort of second uh, downturn in the US, but we are seeing the first signs of that, as you can see here um, with the European data. And again, that is something uh, that we're watching very carefully, and we're very mindful of some of the global cyclical stocks that may be leveraged to this. The final thing I want to say about the virus and, and COVID is you know, where, what, what does the world look like going forward? And there's a number of factors that we need to consider in this. The first one is vaccines. We are literally potentially only days away from the first real data from the phase three trials uh, indicating the effectiveness of the first round of these vaccines. Now, none of us know what the outcomes are. Um, I'd be purely speculating in terms of, of, of the science, but the people who we follow, and we follow a number of these uh, scientists, there is a high degree of, of confidence that at least some of these vaccines will prove quite effective uh, in dealing with the virus. So we you know, keep our fingers crossed for that outcome. Uh, the fact that there is a lot of these uh, vaccines in phase three trials at the moment should give us some degree of confidence. And they also come from different platforms of technology, which means that if one's not working or has more uh, egregious side effects, others may still be okay. But the things we also need to think about when it comes to vaccine, uh, not only the safety, uh, but the efficacy. You know, and there's a big difference between a, a vaccine being 70% effective and 90% effective. Uh, you know, if, if you actually do the maths, that shuts down. The higher that number is, the quicker it can shut down the transmission of the virus. It also, in our view, will affect the uh, take-up of the vaccine as well. There are other big issues as well, which is, for example, the distribution of the vaccine, uh, you know, and, and the availability of that in different countries. And, and it is positive that we've just got news in Australia that we've signed up to another couple of vaccines. So we should, in Australia, I think up now have four potential vaccines available to us. So I think that's quite supportive. But I think it is uh, very important to understand that the widely avail availability of vaccines could be something that we're not seeing until the end of 2021. The other thing that we're looking at is therapeutics. These are the treatments that help mitigate the worst effects of the, the, the virus. And again, there are some positive developments there, but again, the issue here is availability of these therapeutics. The final thing which I think we also need to see uh, improvement on is the testing regime. So, so far, as many of you will know, uh, the tests are quite uh, invasive. Uh, the time to get the results is quite long, and that is something that while we've got these rapid tests that have become available, they've still not got a lot of accuracy. 
And one of the things we believe is that we're going to see this interim phase. It could go for at least a couple of years where we, we still have some prevalence of the virus. Vaccines are available, but not everyone's got a vaccine. Different parts of the world have got different penetration of vaccines. And so you're going to have this sort of confusion and complexity. And one of the key ways of being able to manage that and allow the economy to open up more widely is through rapid testing. So again, that is a development that we're watching very carefully. So the post-COVID world, um, you know, that is still uh, not yet being clearly set up and put in place uh, for these economies to really feel confident about uh, opening up far more than they have already. So that's, that's the sort of health situation. Now let's turn to policy, because one of the paradoxes that we've seen is that while we've had this health crisis and this effect on the economy, we have seen the biggest policy reaction that any of us would have seen in our lifetime. And that's come in two forms, and this chart highlights those two forms. First of all, we've seen the monetary response. Now, this is similar to what we saw in the sort of post-global uh, financial crisis era, uh, but it's come bigger. So that's central banks uh, buying assets, putting them on the, the balance sheet, driving liquidity into markets, forcing asset prices up, trying to rebuild confidence. And you can see the yellow line here, this is the, the, the sort of the change in the central bank balance sheet as a percent of GDP. The higher that number goes, the greater the stimulus. And you can see just how significant the recent phase has been. But what makes this unique in a policy response and very different to the GFC is what the blue line's telling you. That is the fiscal response. We have seen uh, a fiscal stimulus like no other that we have seen. And to the extent that most countries are now looking at 15 to 20% of their GDP in fiscal support. So having these both going at the same time is what's driven that sort of strong recovery uh, in the global economy uh, and has also sort of driven the strong bounce back in markets. And what uh, policymakers have realized is that historically they would talk about moral hazard. So they never wanted to bail out the industry that had created the economic crisis. But in this situation, it's a health crisis creating an economic crisis. And what policymakers have realized is that the moral hazard would be to allow a structural uh, decline in the economy as a result of that health crisis. So they have thrown out their rule book and very much changed their mindset towards both monetary and fiscal stimulus. And what they found is that it's actually it's working and it's not having any unwanted side effects. So I believe that that will continue. Now the consequences of this policy is that we're seeing substantial increases in the amount of debt governments have. And it's worth just going back, this chart goes back 150 years and it highlights that now in the US we're gonna see the highest levels of debt as a percent of GDP that we've seen in that whole period. We're going back to the end of World War II to see anything like this. Now fortunately in Australia we've been in a far better position. Our starting point was a lot lower and as a result of that we've still got a much more manageable debt position. But really the situation in the US is very similar to that in Europe and that will define the sort of broader policy environment that we're in. And one of the consequences of this high level of debt is that governments have got to think about how do they sustain this? How do they manage this? And they don't want to raise taxes, they don't want to go into another round of austerity. So one of the things that we're likely to see, and we're already seeing, is that real interest rates, which is the red line on this chart, are actually gone negative. So the last 10 years has been all about nominal interest rates. So the bond yield has fallen you know, in the US from around 4 down to below 1. But the real interest rate has still been generally positive through that period of time. What we're seeing now, and what we think will continue for some time, is that nominal bond yields will stay in that sort of zero to one uh, range, uh, and that central banks will sort of use purchases to try and contain and suppress bond yields. But because of all the stimulus, uh, we might actually see inflation expectations rise, and that means real rates are negative. And that's a very different world to one that we've been used to, and it has different consequences the sort of assets that you want to own. You know, one of the beneficiaries of negative real rates are real assets, whether it's property or commodities. So again, we need to think about how do we integrate this into our portfolios 
if we expect real rates to stay negative for some time. It also penalises cash. I mean, it's effectively a tax on savers because your, your true real value of your savings is being eroded uh, constantly in a negative real rate environment. So again, uh, some genuine implications for the way that people invest. The other thing that we've seen uh, and the other consequences of low rates is it forces investors to look for other asset classes. So with all the liquidity that's been poured into global um, financial markets, the first port of call has actually been um, to go into uh, cash and money markets, but with rates so low, people are now looking to spread that out. And what we're seeing is people moving into bonds. Uh, and we believe in time, this will continue to be supportive for equities. And one of the great sort of ironies of this sort of rally and recovery in equity markets is that it's been met with an incredible amount of scepticism. If you look at the flows here, what you can see is that very few people have been actually allocating to equities despite the recovery in the market. And that suggests that sentiment isn't as buoyant as you may think. And that, again, in our view, is supportive for markets. So that in turn, in an environment where there's lots of liquidity, rates are zero, markets have recovered despite the sort of drop in GDP and earnings, uh, one of the consequences of that is that we've seen these rising valuations. And a lot of people, rightly so, are sort of raising concerns about where valuations have got to. And again, if we look at this chart here, you know, it gives you some cause for, for concern. This is the US uh, market cap as a percent of GDP, and it's back to where we were at the sort of peaks around 1929. So that's a, a clearly a very concerning sort of um, signal. Now, there are elements and there are reasons why you can sort of explain this away. Um, you know, most notably that, that the US market is far more leveraged to global GDP and the, the US share of global, global GDP has gone down a lot. Uh, but even when you make those adjustments, you're probably still looking around 300% of GDP as a sort of a level. So clearly, the US market is pretty fully valued. Um, but what I'd really also point out is the Australian market, because it doesn't have those sort of global tech franchises, has just not seen that same degree of excess valuation. So Australia may be a, 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 a sort of a, a less exciting market, but it's also a more defensive market. And I think that, that holds it in good stead in the environment that we're in with low interest rates. The other factor that we've seen in terms of markets in the last few months is this continued and accelerated move out of value stocks and into growth stocks. And again, this is proving a great challenge for a lot of investors because you know, a lot of fundamental investors are sort of bought up in an environment you know, where they've read you know, Warren Buffett's books and they talk about intrinsic value. And all of those principles have really been sort of, uh, you know, knocked out of the park in this environment. If you'd stuck to those sorts of very deep value sort of mindsets, you would have seen substantial erosion of your capital because, you know, we're in an environment where with low interest rates, people are looking for longer duration assets, which growth stocks are. Um, people are, there's, there's a, a greater scarcity of earnings growth in the market, so people pay a bigger premium for those stocks that can still grow and also the earnings of those companies have outperformed because in many cases they are actually cannibalizing some of those old industries. So we've seen an unprecedented rotation out of value into growth and this has been another challenge for investors to overcome in this environment. And if we look at Australia, what we can see, we've spoken about the valuations, this is the PE in Australia, the blue line against interest rates inverted. And what we can see here uh, is the Australian market, you know, is, is sort of at the higher end of its valuation range. Part of that is because of the effects of GDP on, on earnings. Uh, but we're reasonably comfortable that we can hold this rating in this environment. But we've also seen in Australia this divergence between growth and value. And you can see here the sort of growth stocks are trading back to where they were around 1999, just before the tech uh, bust and that's compared to value stocks which are very much in their longer term band. So again, the challenges that face global investors are also manifest here in Australia. Before I get on to how do we invest with all of these factors sort of um, in the mix, 
I did want to just talk on the political situation. I know all of you uh, have got sort of news feeds in front of you. We can all follow what's going on uh, within the US election. I did want to just sort of comment on our sort of interpretation of it. You know, we're focused on what are the investment consequences rather than any sort of political views. But the most important outcome here is that we're going to have uh, a divided Congress. And so we're not going to have a situation where uh, a Biden presidency is going to be able to push through a large part of its policy agenda. It will get sort of blocked and it will require sort of a lot of uh, careful negotiation with the sort of more moderate side of the Republican Party. So in many respects, the consequences of that and the market implications of that are that we'll get less of a near-term fiscal stimulus, uh, which will mean that the, that the economy is probably going to rely more on, on the Fed and central bank intervention uh, in the next few years. Uh, and that is actually going to probably help support growth stocks still relative to value. A lot of people had thought that this would be the catalyst, along with a vaccine, for a big rotation back to value. Uh, that is less likely as a result of this political outcome. The other big factors that we'll still wait to see how they play out, uh, there's clearly big issues with China at the moment, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats choose to play China. Uh, and then the second is issue relates to the energy industry and to what extent regulation of that industry will end up curtailing production of oil and gas. So those are the issues that we're watching on that front. So if I step back and think about how do we capture all of these paradoxes that we're talking about. So we've got a, an environment where we've got a health crisis with the economy under threat, but incredible policy stimulus. We've got uh, markets which are highly valued, but interest rates uh, at zero and bonds very close to zero. Uh, we've got growth stocks hugely outperforming value stocks. The divergences that we're seeing uh, are sort of unprecedented in terms of most people's investment sort of um, experience. So how do you position for that? How do you manage that? And the key here is not to try and be a hero and try and pick one outcome or one winner. What you need to do is you've got to have a mindset of, right, I'm going to plan for different scenarios and I'm going to find stocks that almost like a, a sporting team where you have different positions on the field, you need stocks that are going to perform roles for you and you then need to make sure, using that information advantage that you have, that you've got the best stocks in each of those roles, that they have that sort of profile, of skewed profile, so there's limited downside but potential significant upside if the scenario that, they suit, that suits them plays out. So we're looking for stocks that give us protection in down markets, we're looking for companies that benefit from policy response. We're looking for the companies that have, have really responded to the crisis incredibly well to improve their competitive position. And we also want some stocks that if we do see a vaccine, we do see economies opening up, will benefit from that. So that's the framework that we're using. And overlaying that, we've got some other themes, which is firstly a recognition that every time the economy's slow, we're going to see policy response. Governments are determined to prop up these economies. The second thing is that Australia is far better positioned than the rest, most of the rest of the world. And, and Asia in general is better positioned than the rest of the world. So that gives us some more confidence on domestic stocks versus more global stocks. The third thing is that housing is recovering, is going to do better, and there's actually some pent up demand there. Fourth, infrastructure will be a benefit of policy stimulus. And the final one is that China is very much uh, supported at the moment uh, with policy and again has been very effective in dealing with the virus. So those are the sort of themes that we're overlaying on that sort of framework that we talked about. And this is the, the outcome. So if we look at some of the ideas in, in our portfolios, we have that sort of category of protective stocks. And I'm going to go through specific examples of these, but we want companies with good cash flow and also some gold stocks. Uh, we want some growth names in the portfolio because the factors that have driven growth so far are still in place, but we have to be extra vigilant about which stocks we pick there because there are some very overvalued names. And then we have the series of, of policy winners, the, the companies turning themselves around and recovery hedges. 
So just to go into some examples of each of those categories, the first one is, is gold and why we still believe that gold is an important part of the portfolio. Uh, and the reason for this is, as an asset, uh, it, it does very well in the scenarios where the rest of your portfolio may not do well. Uh, and particularly in an environment where policymakers are really stimulating uh, the economy and, and driving liquidity, uh, history would suggest, as this chart shows, the link between money supply and the gold price. You know, gold in many respects can be thought about as a currency. And so if all the other currencies around the world are printing money, growing their money supply, uh, and gold has more fixed supply, that allows the gold price to rise over time. And so that's what we've seen, and we still believe that gold uh, is a good uh, insurance within the portfolio. And what makes it particularly attractive right now uh, and what is unique in terms of Australian gold stocks is they're actually giving you a pretty healthy yield. So, you know, you look at a company like Evolution, it's got very strong free cash flow and you're getting close to a 3% yield. So you're getting paid to have this insurance protection in your portfolio. And so that's why we still think gold is an important part of it. If we then turn to, to growth stocks and, and perhaps, you know, the, the most um, controversial stock in the market at the moment, the most talked about stock, the one that the retail investors are, are trading in the most is, is Afterpay. Uh, and, you know, Afterpay has, has performed incredibly well off the lows, but we do believe that compared to a lot of the other growth stocks, it has got ahead of itself. So on this valuation metric, which looks at the, the total value of the company, so the, the market cap plus the debt, it's called enterprise value. If we look at that and compare it to the the sales of the company, which is what a lot of uh, tech investors use as their metric for measuring value. Um, you can see that Afterpay is now trading at about a 50% premium to some of the other tech names in our market, Xero, WiseTech, uh, and Altium. And we believe that, that that premium is too much. And one of the things that has driven uh, that premium is that a number of factors have coincided to really support Afterpay. And if we look at these factors, what's happened is that Afterpay, you know, is, a, is effectively a payments mechanism for uh, Gen Zs and Millennials generally spending online on goods. And what we've seen in this, in, in this sort of environment is that first of all, there's been a narrowing of what people can spend money on. So you can't spend money on travel, you can't spend money on hospitality. Uh, so people are channeling their spend into a narrower area and that is actually benefiting Afterpay because that's where people tend to use the Afterpay card. The second thing that we've seen is a huge amount of stimulus. So a lot of people have extra money in their pocket, particularly in those sort of demographics, uh, to spend uh, on these items. The third thing is people have been locked down. They've not been able to go to stores. So they've done you know, significantly more shopping online. Uh, and again, that favors Afterpay. So all of these things have coincided and then the company's also done some you know, smart things. They've, they've made small acquisitions in new markets. And again, the market with a sort of optimistic outlook is saying, okay, let's assume they're gonna get significant market share in a, a continent like Europe. Uh, and then you throw on all these other factors which have driven growth stocks. And that's why Afterpay has performed so well. But the thing that we worry about, not only the valuation, but some of these factors may start to unwind. So as people, um, are able to, to sort of escape lockdown and move out uh, and go back to, to malls, uh, you may see a little bit of a drop back in online penetration and that's already occurring. We also will see as we get uh, borders uh, hopefully removed in Australia, you will start to see people sort of redirecting their spend on things that are non-goods related. So again, we feel that, that could impact afterpay. And then the final issue, uh, is just uh, ultimately the stimulus will start to, to wear off and that again will impact on Afterpay. So we think, you know, it's a good franchise. They've been very smart in how they position that, uh, but we think the stock is too expensive and there are some catalysts that will uh, lead for it to underperform. But when it comes to growth stocks, we still think there are opportunities and I'll just flag one, which is zero, which has been in our portfolios for some time. And zero uh, is a a platform, it's a software platform for small businesses uh, to run their accounting, to run their um, inventory management, to run their payrolls and so forth. And one of the things the market had been worried about with Xero 
going into this downturn was that we might see a lot of small businesses go under and that might affect the number of users. But interestingly, because of all the stimulus and support, what we're actually seeing, as these charts show, is that the number of businesses going under in Australia is dramatically lower than we've seen in previous years. And in fact, if we look at the US, we're seeing more businesses being created. Uh, and in many cases, people who may have lost a job are setting up new businesses themselves. Now, some of these themes and trends will unwind, but this is a long way from what people were fearing. And that, in our view, will help underpin the growth of Afterpay in the next couple of years. Sorry, zero, I should say, in the next couple of years. Now, let's turn to a stock that has been a beneficiary uh, of management strategically repositioning their business in a tough environment, and in our view, laying the platform for good growth as the cycle begins to recover, and that's Nine Entertainment. Now, most of us think of Nine as the you know, free-to-air television station, you know, which you know, has the rugby league, State of Origin, Married at First Sight, all of those wonderful shows. Um, but there's a lot more to that company now, and that's what I wanted to highlight with these slides, because what you can see is that they also have other businesses. They have um, the Nine Now platform, which is a streaming service. They have the Stan, which is a subscriber video on demand service, which competes with Netflix. And they also have a stake in domain.com. And when you put all of those together, the digital part of their businesses is now almost half of the overall revenue and has got to half of their profitability. So this is a company that people perceive as an old world company that is rapidly transforming itself into a sort of digital company and is seeing better growth, uh, we believe, than people are expecting. And when you look at how that's translated into the way it's valued, you can actually um, strip out some of those assets that we talked about and look at the underlying core media business and it's been significantly undervalued as we can see here. So Nine in our view is a company that uh, has been uh, sort of caught up in that sort of broad thematic of it's a cyclical stock, it's impacted by the decline in advertising, uh, it's sort of going to be struggling to recover and while there are companies like that we do not believe Nine is one of them and it's been misvalued as a result. Now the final one uh, I thought I should touch on is Qantas. Um, Qantas is clearly one of the recovery plays or the vaccine stocks as some people call them. And I want to touch on why we do believe that Qantas is a stock that in fact is already beginning to turn around but we think has got the potential to substantially recover the hit that it's taken in share price in the last nine months. Now the first thing is we all understand why Qantas has been hit. You know, clearly uh, the preventing, preventing people from flying and the continued shutting of borders. Uh, as we can see here, this is an old photo of uh, uh, Alan and Anastasia. Um, it don't get on quite so well these days. But we do believe that there are good signs with the virus uh, suppressed in Australia that we are going to see um, borders reopened. Now that's the key, that's one of the keys to this stock sort of turning the corner. Um, now, in the meantime, what we've seen is the company has been able to actually preserve cash flows significantly. And the reason for that is that it's got some businesses that have actually continued to go okay. So the frequent flyer business uh, and the points business where they get paid by other companies that offer their points has given them cash flow, as has the freight business, which has actually been booming because of online retail. So they've actually been able to contain the loss of cash flow. But one of the most significant elements of cash burn at the moment is actually people asking for their money to be refunded from tickets that they've bought. And one of the most important things as borders reopen, as people um, begin to fly again, yes, some of them will use their credits, but what it will also lead to is working capital beginning to improve and helping their cash flow. So that's a really important catalyst for Qantas's um, uh, balance sheet and risk profile. The other things that will drive the stock in our view will be the cost out program that they have and there's, there's things that they've never been able to do uh, on the cost side because while you're flying you can't afford the, the disruption of industrial action but in this environment they can really address some of those structural cost issues that have made them less competitive over the years and I think there are substantial benefits to come on that front. And then the final benefit they have is that their only competitor in Australia, only significant competitor, 
Virgin has now been bought by private equity and in that they're bringing in um, people who are uh, former Qantas executives who've got a, a, a good track record in terms of running their airlines and they're going to turn Virgin in our view uh, into lower cost airline. They will be happy to see um, some share to Qantas in the business market which will help support Qantas's earnings uh, and um, their focus is generating a return on their investment which means that they need to get profitable which will allow Qantas to get profitable. So we believe that the industry structure uh, in the airline industry has actually improved through this crisis. So when you put all of those factors together we believe Qantas is a stock that has limited downside from here in a sort of continued tough environment but has substantial upside if we see borders reopening and it's not reliant very importantly, it's not reliant on the international travel. It can recover a large amount of its value just from the domestic uh, reopening. Just going to finish on some longer term themes and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of touch on these. I uh, won't go into a lot of detail, but they're worth just sort of thinking about because one of the things and features of our investment process is while we're very bottom up, stock focused, we also need to be aware of what are the, the sort of the big picture issues that are going to develop over five or ten years and really make sure that our companies are, the, are either aligned to them or if they're not that we've got extra sort of protection in terms of the valuation upside. And if I just touch on these themes, the first one is that you know, we're going to be in a world now where governments have far more influence. You know, from 1980 when Reagan and Thatcher sort of came to power in the US and the UK, we had really a, a sort of 35, 40 year period where you know, fiscal conservatism was the sort of ruling sort of policy doctrine. And now what we're seeing is a recognition that governments can actually borrow more, that they're available, that, that the money is available, uh, they can use central banks and the cost of that uh, is low. So we think governments will become more involved in the economy put aside whether you think that's right or wrong, it's just something we think is a reality of the environment we're in and you've got to make sure you're in companies that are not going to be competing with governments because they have a low return threshold and you want to be in companies that may benefit uh, from that. And you also want to be in companies that perhaps give you protection in a negative real rate environment such as resources. The second big theme is deglobalization, and that's where companies are going to be uh, um, realizing that they need to sort of reassess their supply chains and countries as well. So they're going to be less reliant on one single source and in some cases that's going to add to costs but in some cases that could create opportunity and one of the investments we have is Viva uh, which is also in the refining industry which the market um, does not like but we think that is an industry that could actually see returns improve because of the government's intervention. Uh, the third theme is corporate resiliency and that's a recognition that companies need to de-gear, uh, they need to um, uh, have more protection in their sort of sources of supply and again for some companies that could end up being a negative uh, in terms of extra costs but it might also pro provide opportunities for others. Fourth theme is the sustainability theme. We think that investors are going to increasingly focus on the sustainability of companies uh, and are they good corporate citizens and again what you'll see is capital will flow to those companies uh, over time and that will lead to those companies potentially getting um, uh, a re-rating in terms of their valuation. So one of the things that we look for are companies that are perceived in a less constructive way but are actually already making that transformation and will benefit from that re-rating. And the final theme, you know, one we all know is the digitization of the economy and this has a lot of consequences to it, not only in retail and the move online but it has consequences for real estate uh, and housing and so forth. For again, very important to understand who are the beneficiaries of this and who are the companies that are going to be challenged by this. So I'm going to stop there in terms of the formal presentation. Again, thank you your um, uh, time today but we do have some time now for some Q&A uh, and I'm going to ask Scott to come back and uh, join me so thank you again.
All right. Thank you very much, Christopher. That was a fantastic insight into your team's thinking. Uh, we do have quite a number of questions coming through, which is good. Um, the first one that we'll go to uh, from Andrew is what will drive shareholder returns for the big four banks from here, credit growth, rising long-term bond yields, cost out, or all of the above? So, you know, we all realise the banks have been incredibly challenged in the last few years, and they're, they're a sort of a case study in that point I was just making about, um, you know, being good corporate citizens, the sort of perception of them as not having done that led to more regulation, led to lower returns, and on top of that, they've been very heavily affected by interest rates falling effectively to zero. So it's been a, a real sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of coincidence of negative factors. So how do they get out of this sort of dilemma? Uh, you know, we sense that things are probably no longer getting worse, but we think it's still a year or two away from maybe getting better. And so what does a bank uh, need to do? If you think about the top line, uh, perhaps volume growth in terms of credit growth will be a little bit better than people thought and there's some early signs that housing credit is picking up. Uh, so that's a small positive but a lot of that is negated by the margins that they get continuing to compress and there's still a lagged effect from falling interest rates. So the banks tend to hedge out uh, their interest rate exposure over a couple of years so there's still sort of two years of catch up on lower margins. So that's a sort of a, sort of a, it's a known headwind but it is coming through. And there's also a lot of competition uh, from a lot of smaller players, particularly in the mortgage market. So that, that's the reality, that revenues are probably not growing in the banking sector. So the key is going to be costs, and that will be the point of differentiation for the banks. That's what we're looking for, is which of the banks have genuinely got the opportunity to reduce their cost base. Uh, a company like ANZ is saying, we think over time we can probably take out close to 10% out of our cost base. Uh, and I think that is something where all the banks are probably going to have to end up trying to work out how do they go about doing that. And it's not going to happen you know, in a year. It's going to take three or four years to get there. But that's how they stabilise earnings. Uh, and I think the other thing that helps them is the credit cycle is probably not going to be anywhere near as bad as people thought. So I suspect what you find is that the banks become these stocks that become effectively bond-like in their outlook, where you'll get a yield of, of 4 or 5%, Probably not a lot of capital growth, uh, but in a world where interest rates are zero, I think you probably find that they get supported, uh, but don't expect a lot of capital return. Great. Okay. Uh, so the second question, um, is corporate Australia equipped for the ESG shift that is gaining momentum and influencing asset valuations? So again, I think this is one of those ones where it sort of comes to, depends who we're talking about. You know, I think some companies have very much embraced it, understand that this is uh, a point of, of differentiation. Uh, I think there's uh, a number of facets to this. Clearly, if you're a company uh, that is, is not factoring in risks that come, whether it from climate change or whether it come from community relations, uh, that can clearly impact on your business. And we saw that very dramatically um, with Rio Tinto and the Duke and Gorge um, sort of uh, incident, you know, that's one of the more shameful things that we've seen a company in Australia do, unfortunately, in, in many decades. And, um, you know, I think it correctly led to the consequences in terms of the changes in management. So that's a, 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 a good example where companies, I think, underappreciated the significance and didn't have the right structures and checks and balances in place. But I do have optimism that a lot of other companies uh, are getting their act together, are thinking very carefully about this. There's a huge amount of scrutiny. We actually get asked to go in and talk to companies about what they can do better. Uh, and we think that, you know, Australian um, market will actually be seen as a market which, you know, is a leader on ESG uh, along with Europe. And that will lead to some interesting opportunities. So we, we think that, uh, you know, it's a bit of work to be done, but the, the prospects are reasonably constructive there. Okay, um, do you have any insights of the current climate on the property sector? So yes, um, I think there's a number of uh, elements to the property sector. So I mean, I'll start with, you know, the one that, you know, is all, you know, important to all of us individually, which is housing. Uh, I think that, you know, housing will hold up better than, and, and we're clearly beginning to see that. Um, 
So in the near term, you know, got a lot of people who are sort of reassessing, you know, where they do have savings. They're saying to themselves, well, look, if I can't travel, uh, you know, maybe I need to sort of think about the sort of home I live in. Do I need a second home and so forth? So that's actually creating some demand. Uh, we've also got some demographic factors helping uh, housing in the sense that millennials are getting older and, and sort of going well into their 30s now. And so that, that drives sort of a, a sort of a shift in their mindset. So away from smaller apartments, it's called the nesting theme, you know, to, to sort of homes with gardens. So I think that's a supportive factor. Uh, so near term constructive on housing, the, the big question about housing and the risk to housing is if we don't get any immigration for another couple of years. Mm. Uh, so that is something to watch for. It does take about a two-year lag for that to flow through into demand, but clearly, as a country, rely on about 1% growth from new people coming into the country. If you take that away, uh, ultimately that affects demand for housing. So generally positive, but with a, a, a sort of thing to watch for. If you think about the REIT sector and you break that down into the, the sort of key categories, uh, I would say that the, the shopping mall category is, is challenged. I think there's some opportunities in certain types of malls. So I think you either want to be, you know, in the, the premium end, so you've got the best malls, which will be the places which the retailers will re always retain exposure to, uh, or you want to be in sort of neighbourhood malls, and that's where a stock like uh, Charter Hall Retail we like because you know, it gets caught up in the negative sentiment about shopping malls, but it's predominantly supermarkets, um, it's also got some petrol station exposure, it's also got, uh, you know, sort of um, discount department stores like Big W and so forth, and all of those are trading incredibly well. Uh, and people are tending to shop more in their local community than go to the bigger malls. So, so there are some selective opportunities, but you just got to keep in mind that that structural headwind stays in place. Uh, office is, is the wild card, and we're just not prepared to sort of jump into office right now um, but I think you know there could be some opportunities there clearly most companies we talk to say that they they expect to have less people um, working in their properties going forward you know they have more from home uh, but they also expect space to sort of maybe potentially actually increase for the time being because of, of distancing requirements so sentiment is very bad on office so there may be again opportunities that present themselves in office but we believe that those structural headwinds are still something to be concerned about. And then the final categories, you know, what we used to call industrial sector and, and really now is sort of logistics supply chain and, and has been the sort of the, the place to be in terms of investing in this category. Goodman Group's a great company. You know, that is in the growth stock bucket in our view. Uh, we think it's still okay, um, but, you know, we do have to be mindful about the valuation, but all the factors that have led to it to get to where it is are still in place. And if anything, a lot of traditional companies are now accelerating their investment in the supply chain uh, because they recognise they need to be faster into the online world. Just a follow-up question on that supply chain that you just mentioned. Mm. Um, do you think these tensions with China are going to create opportunity to move uh, companies to move away from their supply chain that might have related wholly to China? Uh, I think it certainly will lead to a lot of companies uh, reassessing the, uh, you know, the, the sourcing that they have. Uh, there's going to be some challenges on that front. It will potentially lead to higher costs for some companies. So, you know, sort of, you know, those, those sort of low cost retailers who relied on, on sort of that low cost supply may, may have some issues. Um, but we do think that they can you know, build that resilience into their supply chain uh, and it will potentially create some opportunities for domestic companies. But we don't have a lot of listed examples of that in terms of, of the beneficiaries of that. Uh, but we do think that, you know, we, it is something that we need to watch for in terms of companies that actually get that, that benefit. All right, continuing on that China theme, uh, with tensions continuing between China and Australia, uh, continuing to escalate, what impact will this have on the miners? Are there any beneficiaries to increased tensions? So, yeah, the situation in China is, is quite concerning. And, and again, we sort of have to divorce ourselves from what's the right policy and what's the wrong policy. We sort of have to accept where we are today. Uh, and our, our sort of read on that is that there's not going to be a big 
U-turn from the Australian government. I think there's some very deep sort of views on uh, the, the sort of um, independence and, and that therefore will you know, not lead to a quick solution with what we're seeing with China. I think what the Chinese are doing is using um, Australia as almost like a, a, a proxy for sending a message to other countries about you know, what they do and, and what they say in public. So I think unfortunately we are um, in, in a sort of difficult situation there. Uh, we've seen a number of things targeted, uh, which you know we've all seen and heard about. Uh, and the big question is the will it impact on iron ore? You know that that's mm. the big commodity. Most of the things that they've targeted so far are, you know, it's it's bad for the companies directly uh, exposed to that. You know, the wine companies, the barley companies, and so forth. But these are relatively small. But the big the big sort of um, exposure is the sort of close to one trillion you know uh, dollars sorry a hundred billion dollars of exports that we do through iron ore and those are the ones uh, which at the moment we don't believe will be targeted I think we're, we're too important a supplier and too reliable a supplier on that front uh, and the mining companies themselves I think have maintained very good relationships with the Chinese and it's seen as a government issue not a company issue uh, so we think that they're okay, um, but we do need to be mindful about, you know, where China goes. And it's it, the risk to the iron ore is not so much, in our view, tariffs, but it will be alternate supply, and that the Chinese will help fund uh, new um, new iron ore mines, uh, notably in in parts of Africa. All right, here's a great question. Uh, looking out into the future, what industry or stocks do you see outperforming and what stocks or industries should investors avoid? So the starting point here begins with our framework. So, you know, going back to that fundamental philosophy, which is that we're looking for change uh, in companies. So we're not necessarily always looking for companies that have structural growth because they can get overvalued people ascribe too much growth into their valuation so we will always apply that sort of filter to anything uh, that we we invest in we still have to have some intrinsic value in it we're not momentum investors and we still fundamentally believe that you know that may work short term but that does not work over the cycle uh, but that said you do need to factor in to your assessment that some companies have tailwinds, some companies have headwinds. And so you need to have a much bigger certainty in terms of your investment case for those companies with tailwind, sorry, with headwinds. Uh, in terms of the sectors that we think are supportive, um, you know, it's, it's the ones which I guess everyone would, would, would be thinking about. I think there's, you know, in Australia, there's a good healthcare industry. Uh, we think, you know, companies such as CSL, yes, it's a big company, but we think you know they are the best player globally still in their industry. We think Cochlear is another leader in their industry, and you know had some near-term issues because of, of lockdowns, but we think that they will quickly unwind. So we think there's some opportunities there. Uh, we also think there's a, a really interesting software industry building in Australia. Uh, you know, the, it helps even though it's not listed here that Atlassian is you know got a large component of Australian exposure. Um, in it and you know on top of that zero has become a very strong company uh, and so we think that you're seeing a sort of environment building around these sorts of companies that uh, is creating some interesting ideas at the smaller end and will lead to sort of IPOs in this area as well so I think that's an area and related to that area is some of these sort of data related companies uh, we think that the data is just going to continue to multiply in terms of the amount of it and the processing of it and the use of it to to sort of improve business performance. All right. Well, we're almost out of time, but we've got time just for one more very quick one. Um, we are yet to see major domestic M&A activity in the economic downturn. What do you put this down to and where do you see the future M&A opportunities? Yeah, I think this is, is an interesting area. We think M&A is turning the corner and is, is increasing, um, uh, you know, Coca-Cola Amatil is a stock that we've been uh, invested in in our portfolios. And so we think that, you know, that is an example of what we're seeing, which is as people get more confident that, that um, policymakers are underwriting the economy, it would definitely help if we got some confidence about a vaccine. 
Uh, funding is very cheap and available. Companies have limited growth opportunities, so it's inevitable that we will see M&A. We've also got huge pools of capital sitting in private equity, which are looking for a home. So we think that uh, what we're probably more likely to see is, is some of those sort of mid-sized companies becoming targets. So we think there's some opportunities there. Great. Thank you. All right. Uh, that's all we have time for. Um, Crispin, thank you very much for your time today. I'm sure our audience got a great deal out of that. Um, and we really appreciate your time. No, and, and thank you. And, and the, again, thank everyone for, for making themselves available today. Ladies and gentlemen, obviously, if you do have any further questions or uh, if there's anything else that you do want to know, please feel free to get hold of your portfolio manager and I'm sure they'll be able to help you. Thank you very much for your time today.